These are the people who traded in their chips and changed their minds, all in the name of fresh air. And we're letting these folks interview each other. Each week, student becomes teacher and interviewee becomes interviewer. I'm Nick Mott, host of the show, and this is Take It From Me, the podcast from REI, your source for outdoor gear, classes, and experiences. As a climber, I rely pretty heavily on both my hands. I don't have a favorite. Both lefty and righty are pretty equal to me. I use them to pull on little edges, I shove them in cracks. They're pretty crucial to what I do. But Maureen Beck, an adaptive athlete, was born without her left hand and decided to pick up climbing anyway. And she got good at it. Really good. She was even featured in a film called Stumped in this year's Real Rock Film Festival. Last episode, you heard from Alan Lim. I've got this tattoo on my, on my wrist. It's 991, or it's IXIXI, and it stands for 99% bullshit 1% pure magic that you live for the magic. Mo and Alan met at the Scratch Labs headquarters and she brought her new puppy, Gimp Biscuit, with her. And Biscuit really didn't seem to like my microphone. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Can you describe what's happening there? Real yeah, quick? so I have a 12-month-old puppy in my lap. She also has a stump. She has three legs and she is seeing the, the fuzzy mic thinking it's a rabbit and is viciously attacking the microphone right now. <laughs> She's got spice. She's got spice. <laughs> and that's her adorable pterodactyl yawn. Here's Alan and Mo talking about their love of food, not taking no for an answer, and just why Mo calls herself an unprofessional athlete. This is super interesting. You've got Biscuit here, and she? She, yeah. Yeah, Biscuit has a stump. You have a stump. You're raising Biscuit. <laughs> is that giving you some perspective on, on how your parents... You know, raised you and how now you're dealing yeah, with yeah. Biscuit? There's this online forum. of It's kind of a support group for parents that find out through their ultrasound that their baby is going to have one hand, uh, among many other things. So that's the thread that comes up a lot. And having been a baby with one hand, my instinct is always to be like, they'll be fine. When they're calling you a bitch at 16 and stealing the car, you're not going to care they have one hand. Trust me. Like, So my thing has always been like, they'll be fine. Get over it. I bring this puppy home. and I'm instantly going to the three-legged dog forums just like, what should I be watching out for? Like, does she need any supplements for her bones? Like, yeah. So now I'm just like, oh, I, I, it's a dog. I get that. But I also, now I kind of get it. I think it's because you, you care a lot. And the funny thing is, I realize now that my parents probably had those same fears and apprehensions, but they never showed it to me. They never were worried. They were worried about me. But they, to me, they had that same attitude of, you'll be fine. Like, you'll learn how to tie your shoes. You'll learn how to do this. Like, don't worry about it. But probably they went to bed at night going, oh, my God, what are we going to do? And she wants to learn how to drive. She only has one hand. How's it going to work? First, let's get to know you a little bit. Okay. Um, give us some 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 basic background. You know, where you're from, what do you do, who you are, how do you identify? My name is Maureen, but I go by Mo for most people. I think efficiency is great, so let's save a syllable. I was raised in Maine, so I grew up on the Maine coast. I uh, started climbing. I was about 12 at a Girl Scout camp in Baxter State Park, which is this totally middle-of-nowhere park that has this amazing granite alpine climbing that no one really knows about. Uh, and then I grew up right near Bar Harbor, which is Acadia National Park, which has more just like granite amazing climbing. So went to school in Vermont, more climbing, North Conway, the Adirondacks, and then I moved to Colorado full-time in 2012. And that's when I really kicked it into high gear and decided that, man, the traffic to the ski hill sucks. I'm just going to do climbing all year round, and, and that will be my thing. 
But you actually didn't start your athletic career as a climber. You actually started playing soccer as a as a little girl. What was how how was that? And and I mean, two legs instead of one hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, I did the usual YMCA stuff. I was not super athletic growing up, but I did do soccer and it it made sense. Like my mom played it, but it was also like, oh, like here's this kid with one hand. She should probably play a sport that needs your feet. But I was the goalie. Like that's the position I wanted to play. I was just like, I don't don't need two hands to be a goalie. Um, Turns out it it does help. (laughs) I wasn't a very good goalie. But I think that's just this. I think I wanted to be the goalie because it didn't make sense to you. Just the same way I like rock climbing because it might not make sense to rock climb with one hand, but like F you sense, like let's just do what we want and have fun while we do it. I get that. You 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 were contrarian. You wanted to was that kind of your form of rebellion? Was that your way of telling people, Hey, I'm I'm just who I am? I think it was like the stubborn punk inside of me. I didn't really have a thought process about it because you know you're twelve, thirteen. It was more just a hey world, I'm gonna listen to my bad ska music and rebel against the norms and for me what was normal was you know activities that I probably shouldn't participate in because how could I succeed in them with one hand I guess not only the whole time that I want to participate but I wanted to succeed and like exceed expectations do you still see yourself that way I mean the way that you identified as a 12 year old is that in part how you identify now yeah, it's like I've always wanted to be the best I can be in, in, in kind of a lazy way. Uh, like the day of the competition, I have rage competitive spirit, but I'm bad at the prep kind of thing. So, <laughs> But yeah, I don't think I think on that kind of baseline of why I do what I do, that hasn't changed in, you know, the 20 years since I've been started playing soccer as a goalie. Where, where do you think that comes from? I mean, it doesn't just come from the fact that you were born with one hand. It comes from something more that is innate in you. So my parents did a really good job of making sure not only to never treat me different, but they would tell me, don't let anyone else treat you different. And I think we all count ourselves as someone different than everyone else. But like, if we don't want anybody else to treat us different, we shouldn't treat ourselves differently. Yeah, I think the nature of it is, is no matter how we look, what we think, where we're from, we always feel like we don't fit in. And that's just part of growing up. And that's just part of kind of finding your tribe, if you will. How did you deal with with that sense of not fitting? And and do you feel like you fit now? I don't think anybody ever fits. And so I think the way I kind of embraced especially not fitting was being proud of it. I never really tried to hide my arm or my prosthetic because when I was a kid, I wore a prosthetic. I would be like, hey, new kids in the playground, look at my robot arm. Like, check out what this can do. When I punch you, it hurts real bad. So, (laughs) and like, I would use it as a hammer in arts and crafts class and stuff. So like, for me, whatever the biggest thing that was different about me, I just made sure I was really proud of. Well, what else is different about you? I'm probably a closet hoarder with animals. I have too many animals. So right now, I know I'm up to three dogs. I have an asshole cat and six chickens. <laughs> I, I think it's funny that you, as a nutrition person, is interviewing me, and I have, like, I, I feel like I'm known for having the worst diet on, like, the world of athletic stuff. Well, we, we, talked, we, we talked about that. I talk about this a lot, you know, that we're kind of extremists about food, and it's not about being extreme. It's about actually satisfying your desires. It's about being a hedonist. Would you describe yourself as a hedonist? Yeah, I can't say no to like the Oreos or the cupcakes or the custard. Yeah, I think I had four cupcakes last night after dinner. <laughs> so you, you have to be an athlete. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I've tried to like eat healthy and I can eat healthier, but I never quit my vices. So 
I'm just like, well, I guess I'm just that kind of person that has to train harder instead of eat better. <laughs> so you've been an athlete ever since you were a little kid. When you were a little kid, what did you dream about accomplishing as an athlete? I don't think I thought of myself as an athlete until like college. Because I think most people, even if you do lots of physical things, like I, I was a hiker and I liked climbing and I liked, you know, doing things. Thinking of yourself as an athlete is this kind of barrier you have to get through because it's like we all have this mental image of an athlete and they're all like bronzed and shiny and strong and ripped muscles. And so I think when I finally realized I was an athlete, the real switch for me was just taking myself seriously. And then I think once you do that, you open up this window of I can push harder, I can be better, I can try harder instead of just being this casual recreational human. You describe yourself as an unprofessional athlete. What do you mean by that? I think it's because I still have fun first. And I think it helps that, you know, climbing, you know, it's about to be an Olympic sport, but it's not really. It's still, as far as sports go, it's it's not the most super serious, crazy thing. So, you know, I'm not at the gym at 5 a.m. I don't have, I'm not this religious workout person. I don't hangboard religiously. I don't have the notes of my weigh-ins. It's just, you know, I like beer and I love scotch and cheese. And so I just, I think I'm a well-rounded human first. And then I kind of tweak things to to be the best athlete I can be. But I think in a sport like climbing, I do have this luxury of also still being like a happy human. And I, I'm not saying that like, you know, the Ironman triathletes aren't happy, but I just, I know I'm not that kind of person. <laughs> like I, I need the cheese in my life. I need the whiskey. I think we all do. I was just at Green Bay last week and sampled some extraordinary cheese curd. I got to tell you, when you fry cheese, something magical happens. Cheese, man. Cheese and maple sugar. Besides, you know, great food, besides Oreos, besides (laughs) cheese, besides a great scotch, what are keys to keeping you happy? What are keys to your happiness? Yeah, I think it's, it's variety. Climbing is cool because you're not doing the same thing every day. Even competitions, like every time you go, it's not like you're just running the mile again with your best time ever. It's always something different. There's a different route. There's something different mental. You're with a different group of people that could affect you in like an isolation or something. So it's never the same thing twice. Even if you go are working your project, the temp is going to be different. And it's just things, it's always different. So I like, I don't think I could be the kind of runner that does like PRs kind of stuff because I just think it's too monotonous I need the difference to keep me going even if I'm not working on a project I think climbing is cool because you can still train for something that you never like you never know what's next but you know it's gonna be rad it's like that's enough to keep me psyched you know Plato once said the mere athlete is philistine and brute the mere intellectual spiritless and unstable How, how do you balance that physicality how do you balance the climbing what are the other sides of you Yeah, well, semi-professional chicken wrangler, but my other sport, I guess, would be fly fishing, which for me, it's interesting because you think of rock climbing as like physical and fly fishing as zen. For me, it's probably more the opposite. I probably have more zen moments climbing. And then fly fishing, I just get like, I rage cast. I'm just like, I see that fish. Why won't you? Why won't you take my fly? I've never heard of rage casting. Does it work? No, it never does. I should learn. Like, that's when I get tangled and I just get like rage cutting line and stuff. (laughs) No, I, I swear on a lot of trout. <laughs> you came out here and you already knew of Paradox Sports. Tell me more about Paradox and your involvement with them and what they do. 
so the real start of the story is what like adaptive sports and adaptive stuff in general. I was born without my hand, but I was always super resistant to like, you know, sleepaway gimpy kid camps and stuff and, and like special stuff and handy. I don't know. I just a lot of it was wishy washy, touchy feely. And it was full of volunteers that were just like, look at you. You can tie your shoes. And at like eight years old, I'm like, yeah, no shit. I've been tying my shoes for like half my life. Like I got this. So I always really resisted identifying as adaptive or the disabled community it wasn't me I, I'm not disabled and then Malcolm Daly found me trolling on rockclimbing.com back in 2009 and was just like hey punk why don't you come out to this adaptive ice climbing festival we're doing in your way so Malcolm Daly lost a leg in a mountaineering accident in Alaska several years ago and then he came down and worked with a couple other climbers to form Paradox Sports, which is just this adaptive sports organization that kind of does adaptive sports specifically with climbing um, and getting disabled people outside climbing. And I was just like, okay, I do like ice climbing. And this Malcolm guy seems cool, so fine. I'll, I'll come out, I'll probably hate it, it'll probably be lame. But I get there and it's full of super rad people that party hard, climbed hard, and oh yeah, by the way, I have one leg or I'm blind. But it was just such a back of the mind thing for them. Everybody has their zone that they can excel in. So this one guy who has muscular dystrophy, he might never climb Water Ice 5, but to see him push his own limits, that was rad and just like not just settle for the easy intro climb he was just like no screw you take me over to this crazy thing that i'm gonna flail over but like push myself on and then followed by a kegger so i was just like okay okay these are my people i think i got it climbing with other adaptive climbers i really like it because when everyone isn't normal or everyone is special then no one's special so it doesn't matter that i have one arm because i have one leg and they're in the wheelchair and they're blind i'm not like i'm not the one kid at the gym anymore yeah. missing a limb what role did Paradox Sports play in helping you as a climber? Was it mostly just that paradigm shift in terms of how you thought about the sport and seeing other people? They helped me sort of test the waters and what it was to be a disabled person, a disabled athlete. And so they helped me get over that sort of, not fear, but like I had this judgment of what it was to be participate in disabled stuff. They introduced me to other organizations, and I was just like, oh, wow, I was kind of an ass. These people aren't lame. Like, they're totally fine. This is totally cool. So because of them, I've done adaptive archery nights and, like, other cute stuff like that. <laughs> and awesome. It's super fun. But you came out here in 2012, and then in 2014, you had this breakthrough performance, winning a gold medal at the World Championships. Can you tell me about that and the kind of transition into that level of competition. So, so Paradox had me climbing a lot. So I got my own confidence up, my skill set up. Um, and then the Vail Mountain Games had their first ever adaptive category in 2013. Up the road, I'll go. That was my first ever adaptive comp, one of the first in the country. And it was just really cool to compete against adaptive people. I competed climbing in college, but I just knew I'll always come in last. I'm just here for the social time. It's fun. I'll push myself, but I'll always be last. So it's kind of hard to really motivate. But knowing that I had a more level playing field was motivating. And then I did the national championships in 2014 as a whim. And they were like, hey, anybody that got top three can go to Spain. I was one of one. So with my first place medal, I was like, I've never been to Spain. I've never been to Europe. Sure, why not? And my field in Europe was also small. I think there was three or four of us. But I won because I had been climbing for so long. Like the girl who got second is 19. So I just, I just had the mileage to be able to read the route. I wasn't any stronger than her. And it was an amazing feeling to be in the stadium, to like be in the warm-up room next to Adam Andra. Like it was this crazy world where I was just like, oh, I can nerd out on this. This is cool. But I knew I kind of was lucky. I didn't feel like I really won one. Really, the 2014 trip was 
what really lit the fire of wanting to like push myself. And I still remember I didn't top any of the routes in Spain. And I was just like, oh, my goal is to come back in two years, next world championships and top some routes. Did you? Yeah, in Paris, I topped two out of the three. I don't know if I got stronger or the routes got easier, but <laughs> I know I got stronger, but. Where is that competitive spirit for you now? What what are what are some of your goals and aspirations? So I'm actually trying to, so I got two world championships. I won my first World Cup gold this last year, which actually is the medal I'm most proud of because it was the most competitive field. And I went in, I went in there thinking I might get fourth. That would be awesome. So I was psyched on that. But I'm actually trying to not so much end on a high note, but realize like, I'm 31 and there's other things going on in my life and I kind of want to see what else I can do. So I'm trying to actually turn down the competitive spirit and try new styles of climbing. So I think I'm not going to the next world championships. I think I'm done with the international competition and instead going to try some Canadian high alpine climbing. (laughs) What do you have planned? Tell me more about that. Uh, Another Gimpy friend of mine invited me to join him to the Circle of the Unclimbables next summer to do an all adaptive ascent of the Lotus Flower Tower, which is one of North America's 50 top climbs. So the trip we're talking about is not only 18 pitches, so thousands of feet tall, it's in the remote Canadian backcountry. So we'll be living under a rock for three weeks, you know, like high weather, like climbing for 22 hours straight. Like it's just this whole other world of suffering. Like I don't think anybody pretends it's fun. Like everyone admits it's just like a level of suffering that at the end you're just like, oh, that was cool. And it's not my style. My only reasons not to are just because it's outside of my comfort zone. And that's kind of a dumb reason to not do something. What do you tell yourself? What do you hear in your own brain when you're trying to overcome something that is totally out of your comfort zone like that? I mean, something I'm trying to do when I get older is say no less. Like I'm trying to say yes more. With staying safe. So I think when you have that gut punch of no, you have to take the time to think, okay, why am I saying no? So this Alpine trip is is the big yes. Like this one's not easy. I have tempted to bail a couple times and now it's just gotten to the point where I can't. So it's good. <laughs> what, what do you think is, is in you that draws you to wanting that discomfort, wanting to struggle or suffer? Well, I've never thought of it that way that I must want it to put myself through it and do it again and again. I think it's that feeling of coming out the other side of like, lying to yourself and saying, oh, that wasn't that bad. Like, that's fine. Like, I spent all summer working this stupid climb project. And as soon as I sent it, I immediately forgot, like, the months of effort and was like, oh, that actually wasn't that bad after all. You know, whatever. So you, like, definitely come out the other side different. Are you that person that complains the entire time at summer camp and then can't wait to come back the next year? Yeah. I'll probably be sitting at base camp in Canada just like, oh, the mosquitoes are, oh, this sucks, or, oh, I need a shower, and then sign up for the next trip as soon as we're down. (laughs) It's incredible to me how quickly we forget the pain, mm-hmm. how, how, how temporary that is, right? And you're hurting, you're hurting, you're hurting, you're hurting, and then there's this relief, and then it's over, and then you just want that feeling again. Yeah. You want to do it over again. Why climbing? You know, what, what is it about climbing that, that pulls you, that draws you? So it started with the sex appeal. So like being being to Paul at Girl Scout camp and my counselor was like, you can do this if you want, but if you don't think you can, you don't have to. That was that punk FU response. Like, yeah, I'm going to rock climb just because you think I can't. And I liked it and it was cool. Um, and I liked it the same way I was liking the goalie. But then, you know, I got home from camp and I was in the bookstore, very old fashioned statement. And I, th- I think I found, found Craig Howers into thin air. It's just a different type of climbing, but it was still just like this whole culture of vertical ascension and really pushing yourself. And it also touched upon the community that climbing has a little bit. And so I just kept reading more and more climbing literature, totally nerded out in the history. 
Um, and then when I actually got the chance to climb more, which is hard when you're 12 and your parents aren't climbers, but, you know, it wasn't, once I was in high school, I could save my babysitting money to go hire a guide for the day and, and, and you know, pay someone to take me out. That's now it's just like, these people are cool. Like, I don't, yeah, I haven't met an uncool climber. Like, it's really fun. And then, you know, once I got to college and really started the full immersion, it really is the culture. Everybody knows the feeling of an amazing climb. I dig it. You found your tribe. Yeah, yeah. And there is such an open, rowdy tribe. I love it. <laughs> you know, that's the why of climbing. What's your bigger why? I think at the end of the day, like, we all get to write our own stories. And I wanted, I want my story to be a fat book full of like no eraser marks just like and then and then and then and then like you know my favorite weeks are when I just like or weekends rather when I go to bed Sunday exhausted and I'm like crap I didn't do the dishes I didn't do the laundry I have you know 18 unwatched shows in my Netflix queue but that was an effing rad week <laughs> but then on another level I also feel like I'm in this position of, of doing more outreach and connecting with more people I pretty much focus on the adaptive community like I don't like the word inspiring and I feel like the work I do I'm not doing for people outside of the adaptive community like I just I want everyone who's disabled to kind of realize they don't have to settle just like anybody else doesn't have to settle and if they like what they're doing keep doing it but if they want to try something new try it and there's just such a barrier when you're disabled to trying new things. And I guess I'm not even saying everyone who's in a wheelchair should try climbing. If they don't want to, they don't want to. But I think they should find something that's new and different to add some spice because spice is, you know, it's rad. Removing the word inspiring, mm -hmm. how much of your why is about you on a personal level? How much of your why is about others? I'm getting more comfortable about doing things for others or, or knowing that it could be the thing that gets an other person going. Climbing is pretty selfish and like the thing I've got going on, I recognize it's like it's me and my partner. It's like there's not a big output for being a climber as far as like the karma you're putting out into the world. So I try to be extra aware of that and, and try to do things that kind of close the circle and making it this like give and take instead of just take, take, take. You know, what, what I think is really cool about your story is that you, to use the word, have inspired others without trying or meaning to or wanting to and that's the best kind of inspiration it's funny so after stumped came out the whole joke is like don't call me inspiring so i get lots of emails that are like you're so inspiring wink wink um but then the ones that mean a lot are the ones that are just like hey i know you don't like this but i can't help but tell you like i did find it inspiring here's what i did about it and so people that actually put thought into why they think it's inspiring versus just like it's kind of like thanking a veteran for their service it's mindless it's the easy thing to do you don't most people don't mean anything because it's just the generic thing to say so when someone can tell me why they were inspired and what they chose to do with it rather than just letting it evaporate that's cool i dig that all right, let me ask you this question. This is kind of a big question that I, I like to ask a lot of people, especially people who are more in the public eye, right? Do you think that people see you differently than you see yourself? I don't think so. Be and here's why. I think because the part of the whole unprofessional climber thing, I think I've been really open about that. And so I think like my my brand, it, it is me. Like, you know, I drink too much scotch. I eat too much chocolate. I love cupcakes. So I think just by being kind of real, and, you know, hashtag authentic, <laughs> gag. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I just, I really put myself out there because this whole people knowing who I am thing is is new. It's not, so I'm not, I don't have this like cultured construction of this thing I'm trying to put out there. It's, it's just me. Tell me about your connection to nature. You know, do you kind of have an innate desire to be outdoors? Is climbing, you know, manifestation of that? Or did climbing actually, you know, 
bring you an appreciation of being outdoors? Yeah, I think climbing for me is a manifestation because like, I grew up hiking with my family. We were a big hiking, you know, clan. I need to get out of the city. I don't think I'm a city person. Yeah, I just grew up super rural, middle of nowhere. You know, my high school graduating class is 100 kids, and I've always been small town. So I like the quiet. I think it's more the quiet than anything, really. And the climbing's kind of like that. Like, oftentimes when you're climbing, even if there are 50 other people there, when you're actually climbing, you're in that zone of it's you and the rock. And if you really trust your belayer, you don't even think of them. It's just like you and the rock. And every now and then you clip in your rope. You hear the blood in your ears. Like, you hear your heartbeat. What's your message? No goal is life is worth skipping dessert. I like that. <laughs> I don't think any Olympic medal was ever lost over a cupcake. Definitely not. <laughs> Definitely lost. I, I would say a lot of Olympic gold medals were lost because the cupcake was not had. You're in a place now in life where your voice is louder than it used to be. Are you more or less careful about what you're saying? Are you more mindful about what you want to tell others? Yes and no. It's more that I feel more pressure to say profound things because I, I can get tidbits out there. And then, you know, the tidbits get boiled down to something like, oh, she sounds pretty put together and smart and, and thinks things through. But really, that's like a 10 second thing out of a 20 minute thing. So, yeah, I, I think trying to sound as smart as people make me look. So I think people really want to hear stuff like, you know, especially since I sent my project and I won the medals. I think people want to hear, you know, if you work really hard and follow your dreams, you'll find success. And then, like, it's pretty much all the cliched stuff people want you to hear. And it's like, you know, I have friends that make a ton of money off of getting on, on getting up on stages and saying that. And I'm just like, I couldn't do that with a straight face and then like do a shot ski with my friends the next day. And like, cause it's like not, <laughs> it's, it's just not who I am. I think the real message I boil down to is like what I'm trying to do is, you know, I'm abnormal. So when I go, and sometimes it can make me uncomfortable. Being abnormal can be a barrier to entry. And I'm thinking of like, that person in their wheelchair who's like I can't go to the climbing gym they won't know what to do with me like I know guys in wheelchairs climb but I don't know how to do it so I'm just not going to do it um, and then if he did go in everybody's going to stare at him because he's abnormal and my goal is to normalize the abnormal what I want to do is get so many weird funky gimpy people out there that eventually you don't get stared at anymore and it's just, you're just like everybody else and it's like that's the real normal too because no one really is cookie cutter everyone's got their quirks and stuff <laughs> Go to REI.com slash blog for photos and other stories of opting outside and tune into our next episode to hear Mo talk with Gregory Critchlow, an architect and maker, designer, and fixer of bikes. This is Take It From Me, the podcast from REI, the co-op that helps you get outside through gear, classes, and experiences. REI is dedicated to protecting the places we play, and they believe that a life outdoors is a life well lived. I don't think advice gets much better than that, so get outside and find your next adventure. <laughs>